Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Today we find ourselves in week three of our series of Pentecost, obviously concluding next week. And I'd really encourage you to go back over the last couple of weeks and to listen to the podcasts or teaching around the Holy Spirit and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Today we want to do something different. We want to just talk around some of the questions that are often raised in regards to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, and speaking in tongues. The things around the areas of the Holy Spirit that sometimes we don't get the chance to ask. And what happens at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Questions that are frequently asked in pastoral or ministry situations. And so we're going to try and hit some of those questions today and hope bring some clarity and some insight into those things. What we did was we asked, we canvassed the, the opinion of a number of groups within Gateway to get some questions and there's some that I'm going to add in. So we've asked people for their questions, they've submitted them and we're going to try and answer them today. Don, why is it important to put an emphasis on Pentecost? You know, we're a Pentecostal church and, you know, it seems as if it comes down the list of celebrations. We got Christmas, we got Easter, we got the resurrection. It seems as if we've come to Pentecost, we've run out of breath for the year. But why is it important that we do? Um, I think just on the basis of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 is probably sufficient for us to make sure that we're emphasizing Pentecost. Um, He'd risen from the dead. He'd breathed on the disciples and said, receive the new life of the new kingdom and the new creation, but then said to them, now it's imperative that you wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. He commissioned them to go to the nations, but he basically said, don't leave home without this experience. You're going to need it. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses. So we we as a church have a massive task to take the gospel to all of the world. That task is not not complete. And as long as the task is not complete, we're going to need the equipment. And the equipment, Jesus said, was to be endued with power from on high. And and I don't think, you know, some people could say, well, that sounds, Don, that it's just like something for missionaries or, you know, evangelists and the rest of us can kind of let them have that and... But when he says, you'll be my witnesses, um, although the Greek word is the word from which we get our English word martyrs, and um, we can understand why in a circumstance where martyrdom is on the cards, you really would need an endowment of power. I I think also it means to live for him, not just to die for him, but in some cultures, including I suspect our own, um, it's actually hard to live for Christ. You know, there's a tsunami of cultural tide out there that is, um, quite frankly, in many instances, anti-biblical, and we need his endowment with power just to be his witnesses where we live, where we work, uh, at our school, in the university. We desperately need that, and, and I don't, the task is not over. We need the endowment of power. One of the things that you and I talk a lot about and talk about on staff is that we don't seem to have seen in recent years that those outpourings of the Holy Spirit that we sort of um, knew growing up or when we were first in, in ministry. You know, you're just thinking back of the, the charismatic renewal, the Jesus movement, you know, later on there came John Wimber and then the uh, Pensacola and Toronto. There doesn't seem to be anything of that degree for the last 20 years. 
Have we just been nostalgic or have we just, hasn't it been? Or what, why is that? Um, it's old guys being nostalgic, eh? Yes, yeah, could be. Now, could I, be. I, you know what, as you look back over church history, and I think also the scriptures, God is a God of seasons. You know, it says in Genesis chapter 8 that the seasons, uh, you know, after the flood, God promised Noah that there would be seasons, summer, uh, you know, spring, winter, autumn, and that they would remain until the end of time. And I think what's true in the natural is also true in the spiritual. There are seasons. We, we know it from our own individual lives. There are, there are seasons in our lives, and there seems to be seasons in the church calendar as well. I think we should be anticipating those, uh, what, what Acts chapter 3 and I think it's verse 19 says, seasons of refreshing. We should anticipate those, we should pray for those, we actually need those because with the church without them can become incredibly dry. I think, uh, you know, the psalmist understood that experience when he said in Psalm 63, he talked about being in a dry land thirsting for water. In those seasons of dryness, we cry out and anticipate and long for those those seasons of, of renewal. And I think probably by virtue, at least of my age anyway, I've had the incredible privilege of living through probably, I would say, four real marked seasons of renewal and refreshing. And the tide comes in and the tide goes out. Um, each season has its own challenges, by the way. Yeah, you know, you, we all imagine that living in revival and refreshing seasons would be a wonderful experience, and it is. It's both wonderful and terrible. Um, you know, revival always looks wonderful from 200 years distance. Um, when you're living in seasons of refreshing, when the tide comes in, it brings all the driftwood and all the uh, all the rubbish in as well. And one of the incredible challenges of leadership in those seasons is trying to work out what's genuine, what's not, what's rubbish, what's the real thing. And as I've read back over revival, you know, and I've done that a few times, um, I, I remember reading about Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening in the 1700s in America. And he was talking about exactly the same problems that we were facing in our season of revival. Um, you know, he's talking about the, the genuine and the spurious, how to know the difference. And it's challenging, but... We'll come to weird later on. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> You're talking about me. No, no, no oh, okay. not, not today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe this comes out of my, my Welshness and the Welsh revival. Mm. And I'll ask you a question, then I'll explain it after. Is it possible to miss out on outpourings? Is it possible for them to pass us by and we miss them? Yeah, I think so. The question I asked that was, for those of you who know, Wales had a great revival at the beginning of the, the last century. And one of the characteristics of it, it was really hard to know where revival was going to break out, but um, where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened. But historians would say very, very clearly that outpourings of the Holy Spirit really happened where people wanted it, and where people didn't really want it or people spoke against it, it just didn't go there. Yeah. So you think yeah, it's no, possible? I, yeah, I do. I mean, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, you have missed the time of your visitation. And, and it is possible, you know. Um, in, in the book of Amos, it talks about the rain coming, falling on one piece of ground and not on another piece, falling on one city and not on another city. And, and I, I think it, it can happen that way, and I do suspect um, that part of the reason for that is the response of our hearts to a move, which is always uncomfortable, you know. Again, we think of how revival looks attractive from uh, far away, but when it comes, it's disturbing. And, and the church doesn't always enjoy change. 
it always creates confusion and, and more often than not division. And again, you think, well, no, no, that shouldn't happen. Revival should bring great unity. Jesus said, I've, I've come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And the sword will divide families, and there'll be father against son and mother against daughter-in-law and so on. And it's, it's always been that way. It's not a surprising phenomenon. Good. Let's move on to a couple of the theological um, points that sometimes cause people some difficulty, especially around tongues. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8 says, where there be tongues, they shall cease. Now, wouldn't that indicate that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the speaking of tongues was only for those early followers rather than for us 2,000 years later? Wasn't it specifically for the apostolic days and those early church leaders? And this is what a lot of people teach. Yeah, they do. We hear a lot of this on TV. Yep. Um, and I think it's a selective reading of the passage. You know, where there are, where there are tongues, they'll cease. It then goes on and says, where there's prophecy, that'll cease. Where there's knowledge, that will cease. And it says, they'll cease when the perfect has come. And the question is, well, when's the perfect? And what's the perfect? And if you read most um, scholars, they will, they will say that's, Gordon Fee says, that's the eschaton, that's the last days. Got it, and his study on 1 Corinthians says the aorist tense indicates something that is um, to be anticipated, looked forward to, and it's nothing other than the second coming. Um, yeah, those things will cease in the light of the glorious day of his coming, but we aren't there yet. And, and I think to say tongues will cease and there's something that's perfect in our age, um, I, I, I think that's a spurious reading of the text, actually. Yeah. And another question also that is used for not for speaking in tongues, what, if any, is the difference between speaking in tongues when one is baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues um, publicly, this is really important because a lot of people, the question is asked rhetorical, and the answer comes back, of course, no. Mm. So a lot of people have sort of said, well, of course we don't, don't have to all speak in tongues, it's not available to everybody, etc. And that's a very strong argument used again by biblical teachers yep. to say, well, of course not everybody's going to speak in tongues, mm. we would actually believe different. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, the passage they're referring to is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, where it says, Will everybody speak in tongues? Rhetorically, as you say, the answer is no. But what that passage is talking about, if you go back and look at it, is Paul says, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Um, and and the, the whole tenor of that portion of Scripture is about public ministries in the public gathering. And so he then says, do all speak in tongues? The idea is in the public gathering, followed, as he explains in, two, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, by interpretation. Will everybody, should we expect everybody to get up, bring a tongues message, and follow it with interpretation in the public setting, in the public gathering? We're talking about public offices and in the public gathering. Then Paul says about speaking in tongues, I wish that you all did that. He's talking to the Corinthians. I want you all to be a tongues-speaking people, is the way that the Greek reads. Now, Paul is either you know, quite confused, saying on one hand, we'll all do it, no, but I wish you would, you know, um, or, or he's talking about two different operations. And I think when he says, we'll all speak in tongues, no, he's talking about the public ministries. When he says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, he's talking about the private prayer language, and, he, and he's desirous that you would do that. 
You know, if, I mean, it's a bit like me saying, I wish that you would all run a four-minute mile. Okay, now, you know, we all go fat chance. But then, but then, you know, there will be some who run four-minute miles. It's, it's that. There will be some that are gifted in a certain way in the public setting, but, but um, in the private setting, he's talking about something different. I want you all to do that because you can. So that's, that's my take on, on that. I, I don't think that should be used as an argument for not speaking in tongues, you know. And he goes on later to say, don't forbid speaking in tongues. It's an exercise that has great benefit. Don't forbid it, even if you don't always fully understand. I'm going to come back to that in a, in a few moments. But one of the questions that we were asked was, how do I know it's God's will for me to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, again, I, I would go back to Luke chapter 24 and, and Acts chapter 1. Jesus said, don't leave home without it. And, and, uh, and I don't think he was just speaking to that group of people. You know, when, at the day of Pentecost, when the, the group of people cut to the heart by Peter's preaching said, what must we do to be saved? He then said, you need to repent, you need to be baptized, which is baptism in water, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he said, and it's available to you, to your children, and to all those that are far off. Now, that portion afar off is not geographical, it's generational, because he's going to you, to your children, to those that are far off. He's not going to you, to your children, and, and geographically, people who are distant. This is a promise, it's called the promise of the Father, and it's available to you, to your children, and to all those who are far off. I think we qualify. We're generationally afar off, but it's a gift that Jesus said, I want you to have. You know, you need the promise of the Father. So for us to simply say, oh, well, you know, it's only for enthusiasts or super elite or, you know, only those in ministry or, 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 I, I think that misses the point of Jesus' command and instructions. It's available to us all. We can take this next section off the podcast, but I want to ask you a question. Okay. Why do some preachers go after baptism in the Holy Spirit? Why do they go after tongues? Why do they go after it with a, just so against it? What is it about tongues, speaking in tongues, the baptism in the Holy Spirit that so many people can get riled up against and preach against it and write against it? Um, I, I think more often than not that comes out of a dispensational approach to Scripture. Um, and a lot of the pastors or preachers that I know that go against it believe that there are dispensations in God's dealings and there was a dispensation of, you know, Holy Spirit activity that happened in the early church and that it's, it's stopped and that it should not be expected in, in our time. Actually, a funny story, when I first got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I, I, was in the, I was a Roman Catholic, I was a university student, so believe it or not, I had long hair, uh, you know, um, bell-bottom jeans and, you know, tie-dyed t-shirt, and, and uh, I went, when I got saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit, I went to some friends of mine who I went through school with, and they were the only Christians I knew. And, and I wanted to tell them what had happened to me, so I went round to their place and started to tell them this story of what had transpired. And they were, and their father who was sitting and listening, they were all ears until I got to the part where I, got, I talked about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And then suddenly the boys went real quiet and the father sort of sat up straight. They were open brethren folk. And, um, and their father was one of the few evangelists, full-time evangelists in the open brethren movement. And he'd written a book. 
And, uh, and so at the end of my testimony, you know, it's, it's like you tell a joke and nobody laughs. You know, it's one of those moments, kind of like, I thought it was funny, but nobody else did. And I thought it was good, but they obviously didn't. And um, Dad said to the boys, um, why don't you go and get the book that I wrote and we'll give Don a copy. So I was uh, yeah, surprised, but they had bought into that dispensational approach. The long, the long story of that, though, however, is this guy had a fantastic library. Um, and and um, I just had this insatiable desire to read after I got saved. And so I asked him, could I borrow some books? And he said, yeah, sure. I think he thought some of the books would set me straight. And um, <laughs> for at least three years, I raided his library on a weekly basis. And at the end, he, he kind of fessed up to me. He said, I just, this, this was confusing to me. I didn't even believe Catholics could be saved. And, and so the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues just proved that it was demonic to me. But the thing that really threw me is you're the only kid um, who's raided my library and who reads these books and devours them. None of my brethren kids read. And you're an enigma. So I remain an enigma to some people, I guess. Is it true that really when you came into the fullness of the Spirit, you really then started to become an avid reader? Yeah. Yep. I thought that was true, yeah. Yeah, I hardly read a book, well, other than a cricket So you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues and start to read? I'm sure there's a gift of, of reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm sure. Because, <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I had hardly read a, you know, I mean, probably you could count on one hand, if you excluded the cricket books. Um, I, I could count on one hand the number of books that I read. But after I got filled with the Spirit, I, I became a reader. I devoured books and uh, still haven't satiated that appetite, actually. I'm still on a quest. So many books, so little time. This is absolutely nothing to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever. But as a young man, you got caught out by a teacher who was an, actually a cricket fan himself. Yeah, yeah. At the start of the year, this... Um, fourth form English teacher said I want you to read and I want you to write a list of the books that you read and so I had to, re I had to write a list you know and so they were all cricket books and I thought if he doesn't know cricket he, he won't know the titles you know Between Overs, Tale of Two Tests, My Story they're all unfortunately he was quite a good cricketer and after about the tenth book he called me aside and said Barry read something other than cricket books would you <laughs> He'd be proud of me today, I think. You touched upon this uh, last Sunday, but I think it's well worth us revisiting. Um, do Christians receive the Holy Spirit when they are saved? If so, how is this experience different from the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I did touch it on last, uh, on last week, so I won't go into detail. If you went there, I talked about the difference between John chapter 20 when on the day Jesus rose from the dead, he met the disciples in the upper room and he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And I contrasted that with the experience of Acts chapter 2, which occurred 50 days later. I think there is no way um, that you can say the disciples weren't saved before Pentecost, that they received the Holy Spirit and got saved on the day of Pentecost. They were clearly Christ followers. They had received the Spirit. And I think anybody who opens their heart to Jesus and, and says, I want you to be Lord of my life, I repent, I turn from my ways, I open my life to you. 
I, I believe they receive that breath of the Spirit that gives them new life. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says that unless you have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. So at salvation, there is an impartation of the Holy Spirit's new life to you. And yet as you look at the book of Acts, whether it's Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19, clearly there is a differentiation between that experience that we call being born again and that experience that is the endowment of power from on high. So, yeah, if you're saved, you, don't, you have the Holy Spirit. Um, but there is, I think, an experience of release or endowment of power. Now, sometimes people say to me, and I mentioned this last week, but sometimes they say to me, but if you've got the Holy Spirit, how can you have more of a person that you already have? And it's a bit of a tongue-twisting philo- philosophical question, but I always turn it around and say, don't ask if you, can, if, if you can have more of the Holy Spirit. Ask, can the Holy Spirit have more of you? And the answer to that question, almost in every case, is, of course he can. I said, well, let him have more of you. And I don't really mind if you say it's something that rises up within me. It's resident within me, and the Holy Spirit is already within me, and he releases from within. I'm not going to fight you over that. I don't mind if it's a release from within or a pouring down from above. The scripture actually probably indicates both. And I mentioned Genesis flood, you know, the Great fountains were broken up from the deep and the windows were open from heaven. And I think God can and does both of those things. So let me ask you the straight question then. Why should we be baptized? Why should we seek the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Um, again, I would go back to Luke chapter 24. Um, we're, we're Christ followers. We commit ourselves to follow uh, in his footsteps and, and um, be obedient to his commands. And he said, don't leave home without this. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I, um, I don't mean, I wouldn't be a pugilist on it, I wouldn't fight you on it, but, I, but I'm fairly uh, insistent on the fact that it is something that you need. And probably that comes out of my own experience, really, because I, I gave my heart to the Lord, actually, as a result of a Bible and schools teacher, and, and kind of through my teenage years had this... Um, sort of relationship with Jesus. I, I, I didn't go to church. I didn't really follow him fully. But I can't remember a night that I probably didn't pray. And um, I got one of those Gideon New Testaments when I was a third former, and I read it, you know. Now, was I a Christ follower? Was I saved? You know what? I'd, I'd say I was, but I, I really struggled living the life. The baptism in the Holy Spirit turned me on a sixpence, man. It was... You know, um, it changed my life. And I want that for everybody. Um, Yeah, I want that for everybody. What are the benefits of speaking in tongues? Well, 1 Corinthians 14 says that when you speak in tongues, you build yourself up. You edify yourself. And uh, in Jude chapter 20, it says, build yourself up up in the most holy face, praying in the Holy Ghost. You say, well, how does it do that? I don't know. I'm not quite sure, but I believe the scriptures, and I believe that when you do pray in tongues, there is something that goes on inside that builds faith. You say, well, I need to understand it before I obey. Uh, Well, best of luck with the Trinity, with creation, with pretty much anything in the scriptures, you know. Sometimes obedience comes first and understanding comes afterwards. Sometimes obedience comes and understanding doesn't come at all. And I'm not suggesting that we have a mindless faith, you know. Um, 
I think, again, I said last week, Christianity is too mysterious to be rational, but it's too rational to be mysterious. But there will be some things you think, you know what, I don't, I don't fully understand, but I, I do experience and I do believe. And uh, if, if the scripture says, when you do this, such and such happens, you know what, I believe it. And I have experienced it. And I think also, you know, one of the incredible benefits of praying in tongues is so often, either in worship, when you come to an end of English, you know, and there is something deep inside that's crying out to say more and you don't know what to say, tongues can be something that taps into that deep inner desire to simply say more than, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I worship you. It taps into something deeper than that. And not only in worship, but in intercession, it taps into something deep. Romans says, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit, with groanings that can't be uttered, prays through us. And there have been lots of times, I guess, and still are, you know, when I'm facing situations and I don't know how to pray. People I don't know how to pray for. So I resort to my spiritual language. I say, Lord, I don't even know how to start to pray for this situational person. I believe the Holy Spirit in me does, and I'm just going to yield to that, and I pray in tongues. And, um, you know, one of the things that tongues, uh, tongues is said to do is that he who speaks in tongues, again, 1 Corinthians 14, speaks in mysteries. There are two kinds of mysteries that are referred to in the scriptures. There is the mystery of godliness, and it talks about that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I think it's verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then in Revelation chapter 17, maybe verse 5, it talks about the mystery of iniquity. If, if the Holy Spirit speaks in, in and to mysteries, then I think there are two kinds of mysteries that he speaks to. One, he speaks in praise and worship to the mystery of godliness. And other times he speaks in warfare and um, in conflict to the mysteries of iniquity. And for those of you who speak in tongues, you know that sometimes you know, you're praying in tongues. And though you don't know what you're saying, you know to whom you are saying it. And you are praying and worshipping and adoring. And then other times it can change. And it, you know, for me at least, it becomes guttural and aggressive. And, uh, and you know, the first time that happened to me, I thought, Lord, am I angry with you? You know, I mean, this doesn't feel good. You know, I'm speaking in a way that really is like warfare. And, and I began to realize that I wasn't speaking to him, but he was speaking through me into a situation that really did need to be addressed in spiritual warfare. So I believe tongues is a phenomenal gift. You know, people say, well, why would he give us tongues, you know? Well, he could have given us anything. could have given us wings, you know? But, but he didn't. He chose a, di a dimension of communication. And I think all of us realize that at the basis of any good, healthy relationship is good, healthy communication. And I don't think it's surprising that he gave us a gift of speech. I get, sorry, I'm going on. This is a sermon, not a panel. In James, it says, whoever controls the tongue controls the vessel. There's, there's a key. Sometimes heard the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and all that. Sometimes like the great psychiatrist. Yeah. Jack Hayford did a brilliant sermon on that. Uh, he, he talked about the Holy uh, He talked about Jesus being the great physician. And he said, if Jesus is the great physician, the Holy Spirit is the great psychiatrist. Because what he does is he unties knots. And uh, he really does, including knots in our own lives. I know... I, I, you know, just by testimony, I know people who went through significant deliverance as they were speaking in tongues. 
God just was untying knots in them, hurts and wounds and things that had just tied them up. And the Holy Spirit, as you say, is the great psychiatrist and knows how to go straight to those things. I would often pastorally in the situations where guys are struggling in their marriage or with their kids or with their parents or even with addiction, sometimes just to speak into that situation and speak into tongues and do it and, and go for it and be, I mean, get on your own, get in the car, speaking tongues into those situations. And he would say, virtually every time people come back to me, something changed, something happened. It may not be complete freedom, but something changed in that situation. And we would say changed in the heavenlies. Yep. I'll bring that about. That question that was really based on a question that one of our young people asked us, and I'll read it out to you. She asks, how crucial is it to speak in tongues to my Christian devotion? Am I missing out on something that I cannot get elsewhere by not speaking tongues? Uh, the answer to that is yes, on the basis of the things that I've just said. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't think, if I ask for a poll, who's, who's 100% happy with their prayer life, I guarantee there wouldn't be a person who would raise their hands. I know people who spend hours and hours per day praying and, and, and you know, seeking God, and they would say it's not up to scratch. Um, all of us need all we can get in the realm of prayer. And when God offers us a gift, that really has to do with praying in significant ways, and we just say, oh, I, I can get that somewhere else. I'm thinking, really? You know, what are you talking about? Um, I, I just, yeah. You, you, again, I don't mean to be um, dogmatic. I don't, know the, I don't know whether there's a difference between insistent and dogmatic, but if there is, I'm insistent. We need it. I can use this person as an example this morning, probably won't be able to use this tonight. But am I right in saying that Jackie Pullinger used to start yeah. her day off by always speaking in tongues for 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, every day yeah. she spoke in tongues and she would say that was the, one of the ways she saw real breakthrough and real fruit. Yeah, it was. What was that book, Chasing the Dragon? Chasing the Dragon. Yeah, yeah. Was she in Hong Kong, wasn't she? Yeah, she was in the, in the what did they call it, the, the Silent City or what was it? The walled city, that's right. A portion of Hong Kong that would, the police wouldn't even go into. And Jackie Pullinger used to go in there and minister to drug addicts and criminals. And yeah, tongue, speaking in tongues was a significant part. She would say it's key, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Again, touched on this one uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think it's really good to hear this one again. Though once a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit, why is it necessary to have, um, be refilled, have another encounter, just keep coming back to the fountain? Why is it important? Because we leak. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Simple. You know, um, it's like we need, we, we need to be filled, but I don't know about you, but I, um, sometimes the hole in my bucket can be quite large. Um, and, and we need constant refillings. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, go on being filled with the Spirit. And he's talking to a Pentecostal church. He's not talking to people that have never experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is a, this is a full-on... Pentecostal church, and he's saying, go on, be, keep, keep being filled. And again, as you read the book of Acts, you know, in Acts chapter 2, they are filled with the Spirit, the place is shaken, they're all speaking in tongues. Go to Acts chapter 4. They get, the disciples get dragged into the Sanhedrin, told off, told not to preach Jesus anymore. They go back, have a prayer meeting, and the Bible says the place was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and they spoke the word boldly. So I don't know the amount of time between the day of Pentecost and that occasion, but there was a refilling shortly after that. And again and again, you find it says, Peter, 
being filled, or Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, I mean, they had had an experience, but in those moments they're empowered and endued afresh. And so, um, you know, so when people say to me, oh, Don, you're preaching to the choir. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit way back in the 1970s. I say, good on you. Where is it now? You tell me the bucket was full in the, 19, in the 1970s. That tells me nothing about whether the bucket is full right now. Even if I say the bucket was filled yesterday, it doesn't tell me whether it's full today. And it's something we have to come back to and you know, constantly be saying, Lord, refill me. When we go into circumstances or situations where something's going to be demanded of us and we're aware that's going to need wisdom or whatever, you know, pray, Lord, would you just fill me afresh? Anoint me afresh. Anoint me with fresh oil. In the time we've got left, I just want to ask some very practical questions around the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, why are some people baptized in the Holy Spirit immediately while others seek a long time? without receiving the experience? Pass. Okay, next question. Um, <laughs> Can I phone a friend? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a question that's often asked, isn't it? Some people it is, come, it is yeah. often asked. I mean, I've told my experience so many times, but it, it was months bef before I was filled with the Spirit. And I'm looking back, I'm, I'm actually grateful. I was very frustrated at the time because I couldn't understand why God wouldn't give this to me since I was sincerely asking. But in, in lots of ways, I look back now and he was just holding the horses, you know, and, and allowing the hunger and the intensity to build, you know, it's like, let me go. No, no, just wait. Let me go. Wait. Let me go. Let him go. And man, it just, man, I was, I was ready for it when it came. Just as you're saying that, a funny story in my own life is my parents bought their first farm in 1948 and they were both raised in Baptist churches. So when they moved to where they bought the farm, the only evangelical church was a Pentecostal church. So they were Pentecostal by geography before, by, before experience. And uh, I remember I, I got saved, give my heart to the Lord, and I'd asked my mum, can I get baptized in water? And she said, no, no, let's wait a couple of years. Let's wait two or three years so you'll always remember it. But a year after I got uh, saved, I went to a Holy Spirit. We used to call them waiting meetings. And I got filled with the Holy Spirit when I was about 11. And I came home and I'd obviously been filled with the Holy Spirit. And this blew my mother's theology. And I remember, saying, I remember her saying to me, son, well, seeing that God's baptized you in the Holy Spirit, the least we can do is allow you to get baptized in water. <laughs> and I just thought, good on you, mum, for having that flexibility yeah, yeah, of mind. But it was yeah. just yeah. easy. I, honestly, I don't know. That. Well, I think perhaps one of the things why people maybe don't come in quickly is a complete misunderstanding in terms of their role in the miracle. Now, I, I, you know, I'm, I've been around long enough to see people who just, they're overcome. You know, they're, they're overcome by the Spirit. And, and uh, I remember praying for one guy and he went flat on the ground and his mouth started moving up. And, and he was, you know, big, big sort of eyes sort of, what's happening? I can't control my mouth. But he was saying nothing. And I just said to him, put voice to it. And it was, and he, and he just, away he went speaking in tongues. And, and I've, you know, seen that lots of times, but, but I'm not even, I'm, although we always tell those stories, I'm not sure that they're the norm. Um, and, and a lot of people waiting in meetings, you know, when you're praying for them, they're waiting and it's like, 
Um, God isn't doing anything. And uh, I always tell the story, and uh, we'll do probably again next week, um, of Peter in the boat. And he sees Jesus walking toward him and decides that he would like to be able to do what Jesus is doing and walk on water and says, so Lord, can I come? And Jesus said, come. Now, what would happen if Peter sat in the boat and said, oh, okay, um, I know God wants this for me. I want to walk on water. I really like to walk on water. And just went on and on and on, you know. I think Jesus would probably go, snap out of it, Peter, walk. You've been able to walk since you were this high. You know how to walk. It's your legs, your muscles. Get up and walk. The miracle is walking on a substance that you can't walk on. But the miracle is not me making you walk. And in almost every miracle you like to read in the Gospels, there's always a part that people play, either supplying their lunch or going off to the priests or going to wash in the pool, or in this case, getting up and walking. Speaking in tongues is exactly the same thing. And a lot of people, when you're praying for them, they sit passively, mouth closed, saying, in their head at least, I really would like to speak in tongues, but I'm waiting for God to make me do it. Well, on rare occasions, God might, but on 98% of the occasions, you speak. You open your mouth and speak. When it says in the book of Acts, they spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, I, offer, I always ask, who's they? Well, the disciples. Yeah, that's right. The disciples spoke, and you have to too. It's your tongue, it's your lips, it's your voice box. And as you yield those to the Spirit, he'll give you the utterance. But if you don't yield them, if you sit in the boat and wait for God to lift you out of the boat, the likelihood of actually speaking in tongues or walking on water is probably nil. At some point in time, you step out of the boat. And tongues is exactly that. And one of the reasons it took me so long is I was waiting for God to supernaturally grab my tongue. And I, you know, you've heard me say, one, one time Psalm 81 struck me. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So I did. Like that, you know, toothpaste ad, you know, the, the little cartoon character who opened up. Nothing happened. And another time I gave him my voice and I went, ah, for about three minutes and nothing happened. Because you don't speak by going, ah, you speak by going, hi guys. Tongue, lips, voice box. And it's the passivity that, that people embrace that I think stop a lot of people getting the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But... Okay, why is it when sometimes when people are filled with the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit comes upon them, this is sometimes accompanied by shaking, laughing, falling, and other manifestations. Is the Holy Spirit weird sometimes? <laughs> yes. You just want to see someone struck with lightning, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> it's my birthday present here. <laughs> Well, speaking of lightning, um, no, I don't think the Holy Spirit's weird. I think we can be. Um, but having said that, I don't think everybody who shakes, laughs, cries is weird. You, don't, please don't do this, but if you were to take a fork, okay, and go to a power socket, um, I suspect at the very least your hair, if you, if you had any, would, uh, would, <laughs> would stand on end or more likely, you would be tossed the other side of the room and end up upside down, as I once did as a kid. I am speaking from experience here. Yeah, there's some Irish blood, okay? Sorry, Hope. Um, you touch a power source, 
man, you can, you can, you can know about it. And sometimes, sometimes people touch a power source. The Holy Spirit comes in power, and, and there are manifestations. There, don't, there doesn't have to be. And, and the manifestations are not a sign of maturity. Okay? In fact, some of the best believers, the most faithful believers, the most fruitful believers that I know would tell you, you know what, I've hardly had a manifestation in my life, or maybe two or three occasions in my life. It's not a sign of maturity. In fact, we were talking about this the other day, and I was saying, more often than not, a visitation of God is an invitation. And what you do with that uh, is really important. It's not an indication of your maturity. It might be an indication that God is trying to draw you into something deeper, and this is, a, this is a, an invitation to respond. So in seasons of visitation, you know, that I referred to before, one of the most often asked questions, people come to me and say, Don, I haven't been touched. Is there something wrong with me? And the answer to that is no, not necessarily. Not necessarily at all. Um, it's not a sign of maturity or spirituality. It's just some people stuck the fork in and got, got blitzed. Other people didn't and sometimes, quite frankly, don't need to. A question came out of a question that was asked on 1 Corinthians 14, 33 says, but God being, a, he's not a God of disorder, but a God of peace and order. Yeah. And sometimes it seems pretty chaotic when the Holy Spirit is around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you hear that a lot, and especially in times of renewal. This is not order. God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. And I always want to say, who's order? You know, order by whose definition? When you go up to, you know, the, one of the great frustrating things is you go up, you're in, you're in, you know, an airport or something, and you think, oh, I'd really like a Coke. So you go over to one of those machines, and you put your money in, and it's, it's out of order. It's not working. Okay, and out of order means it's not working. And when it says God is a God of order, it means he's working. And when he works, sometimes strange things happen. They, they really do. And for us, we look and go, that's not in order. And he says, yes, it is, it's working. And when he works, um, you know, yeah. So if, if you mean by order, decorum and Western sort of sensibility and civility, um, the, the Bible is going to be a strange book to you. Because the Holy Spirit comes on Saul in the Old Testament and he falls down, he's naked, and he prophesies for 24 hours. Um, I, I don't think that qualifies for order in terms of a Western definition. I'll tell you what it also didn't qualify for. It didn't qualify for God's endorsement. At that point in time, Saul was in incredible disobedience, and I suspect that that encounter was an invitation to be really different and to change. He did not respond to the invitation. And I've seen a lot of people powerfully touched by the Holy Spirit who have not responded to the invitation, and in six months' time, they are not walking with the Lord. It wasn't an indication of um, endorsement. It wasn't an indication of spirituality. It was an invitation, and they refused it. We've got 90 seconds left, and I just, uh, with next week coming up, and next Sunday night especially, Don, what do you say to someone who says, I've been going forward for years, many, many years, asking God to baptize me in the Holy Spirit and to take me into this experience? Nothing has ever happened, so why should I bother again? Yeah. It seems as if I'm begging God, yep. and he doesn't seem to be responding. Yep. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, I understand. Mm. 
But be like the uh, importunate widow who kept coming, who kept coming. I'd want to say to you, keep coming. I had an experience one time. I was visiting another church, and um, I, I said at the end, you know, if you've never re- received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, please come. Because f- for some reason, um, God has really given me faith for that. And, and I, I can't explain it, but I pray for people with a real sense of anticipation and expectation. And um, I asked if anyone wanted to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and a few people came up, and, and I'm praying for them. And then this one guy came up, and I never really took too much notice of him, but I remember starting to pray for him, and he just hit the ground. And please, this is not meant to be a racist comment, I don't, in, in our politically correct environment, I don't even know whether I should say it, but it sounded like a Chinese laundry. I mean, this guy is going in this most oriental language at the top of his voice. And I thought, you know, wow. So people came to me afterwards, the pastor came to me afterwards, and said, that guy is a chronic seeker, what he called a chronic seeker. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? He said, been prayed for by everybody. And, um, and he said, when he came up, he said, oh, well, best of luck. And then said, suddenly he was on the ground speaking in, in an oriental language, you know. And it's just like, oh, we're so thrilled for him. And, you know, of course, I was too. And I'm not saying that because, you know, man, let me pray for you, you know. Uh, how, however, having said that, I, I think I, I would want to say, I think God has allowed me somehow to do that, and, and that has been a constant sort of refrain of, of ministry, and I, I don't take any credit for it in the same way that I don't think anybody who's got a beautiful singing voice should take credit for it, it's just a, it's a gift. And you know, you, you do need to say, the gifts aren't an indication of maturity. A gift is a gift, and some people say, well, how come he speaks in tongues and he's living like the devil? It's a gift, it's not an indication of maturity. Maturity is another matter completely, and, and th- this, I, I, it is a gift, and I don't know why, but it functions, and I want to say, let me pray for you. Not a 100% guarantee, because, you know, I pray for people and they aren't touched or, or filled, but um, a good portion are, and well, I, th- I believe the, for that. One of the things that I can say that I didn't know before working alongside you was the real gift that you do have for bringing people into the fullness of the experience of the Holy Spirit. Because, yeah. you, you know, when you live 18,000 kilometers away, you don't know everything about them. But I've seen you do it time and time again. And you, and you, you do have a gift in that. And yeah. that's... Part of it is explanation. Part of it is the Peter thing, you know. And, and uh, you know, I know people are looking over at Joe and she's smiling because she's heard it a hundred times as she's come to encounter engagements. And they could do it, and ultimately they will. But um, I, I remember a guy coming to me one time and just said, I don't get the baptism in the Holy Spirit, Don. And, and as I'm trying to explain it, I had a picture in my mind of an old Vickers machine gun. And if that doesn't make any sense, you know, you, you see these guys and they've got the gun and they've got a guy lying next to them feeding the shells into the cartridge and these guys are... And other guys. And when that, when that you know, belt has run out, he slaps in another one. And, and I said, you know what? Speaking in tongues is like a vicar's machine gun. Do you know what that is? And he said, yep. And I said, you've got the trigger mechanism. The Holy Spirit's got the language. I said, you've got to fire the trigger. 
okay? And it's your tongue, your lips, and your voice box. If you don't speak, he can do all he likes in terms of feeding the shells, and they're not going to go anywhere. I said, but when you go, Good. <laughs> and you see, you see people's eyes light up. They go, oh, okay. So sometimes just explaining it rather than praying for them and saying, yeah. have you got it yet, brother? Got one. Which is what happened to me <laughs> in my first Pentecostal church. Little, ch- little church, 15 people. I came in, I'm the stranger. Stand out like feathers on a frog, long hair, beard, uh, um, be- beads, not beard, moustache. Um, oh, here's one. And they came up, what do you want? I said, I'm really seeking the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they got around me, all 15 of them. They're all laying hands on me. I'm gasping for breath because I couldn't get oxygen. You know, (laughs) always getting really touched. (laughs) And at the end, one of the guys says, have you got a brother? And I looked up and said, what is it? You know, I don't know what it is, you know. Um, So a little explanation helps. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.